Are you guys ready for a camp report? You look kind of... Okay. Yes. Did you do any sleeping, Caleb? Do you sleep at all? You don't look like you've slept since you got... <laughs> with her eyes open. My sister-in-law can do that. She sleeps with her eyes open. It's very freaky. Morning, Dad. sleep to the next day. Lydia slept. She came home and she slept till seven. What time did you guys get back? About five or something like that? So she slept for two hours and then we, we had her come over and visit grandpa for a bit. Camp week. What? Yeah. What's that? Oh, what, did you enjoy yourselves? We had, we had fun. Instead of like panicking whether things are going well, we were just
Do you, want, do you want me to put one down here? That would be fine. Actually, I don't think anyone's going to use this one. So one chair is fine. Anyone on the I did. One on the chairs? One on the chairs? Two? Wait. One on each chair? No, just one on the chair.
Good morning. Let's go over a couple of announcements. Uh, you see the uh, the first couple of three there, the uh, offering envelopes in the box uh, that we have. Uh, Andrea, our contact number for any concerns that we have, prayer lists and the like. Uh, Days of Praise, Acts and Facts booklets in the lobby. Uh, our next communion dinner is going to be on August the 1st. And it's going to be a, a dinner slash picnic event. Uh, the deacons are, are bringing the meat. We have a sign-up sheet uh, in the foyer there. Uh, we've got some itemized uh, items that we're going to uh, ask that you sign up for. If you have any other suggestions, or just uh, put them under the other bracket of other. So uh, it promises to be a pretty good event. We've got uh, barbecue ribs, barbecue chicken on the slate, so it should be an enjoyable dinner. That will be held following our communion service in the morning, so we hope that uh, you'll enjoy that. Let's look at our uh, scripture for meditation. It's taken from the book of Matthew, chapter 22, verses 1 through 14. And that'll be in your Pew Bible, page 
Would you stand with us this morning as we begin our service and opening prayer? George, would you lead us, please? Red hymnal, the Red Trinity, and turn to number 466. 466 in the red. picking of a favorite hymn we are going to have the campers from last week come up and give their camp reports so come on up I'm going to go first, gives them a minute to collect their thoughts. So this year, um, we had a lot of newness at camp. 
we had a new director for the first year at camp. Officially, last year was supposed to be his last year, but we all know what happened last year, COVID. Um, so this was the first year that camp officially met as a summer camp under his direction. Giles Heron was our director this year. We had a new camp pastor for the first time in a decade or more. Um, Tim Morrissey from Lemoyne Baptist Church was our camp pastor this week. And both of those gentlemen did a great job in their new roles. So the theme of the week was peaks, valleys, and plains traversing the Christian terrain. So those messages were given by Tim at Pastor Tim at both morning and evening every day. So you add up the days. They have four full days of camp, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday that they're there. Morning and night, that's eight sermons. Sunday night, they get a message when they arrive, that's nine. And Friday morning before they leave, we have question and answers. That's 10 times he's speaking throughout the week. So um, in addition to those spiritual times, the young people also have morning devotion times privately. That's their time alone, them and God. Um, and that happens every single morning that they're there. And then every single night, we also have camp devotions largely in our cabins. So the girls in their own cabins, the boys in their own cabins, and then on the last night at the camp bonfire. So it's a really spiritually uplifting week. Um, it's a time to kind of dig deep in your own personal walk with the Lord and also as a camp to um, fellowship with other Christians. And also there's a lot of unbelievers there who are hearing a lot of this stuff for the first time. So it was a really spiritually good week and I'm excited to let the young people tell you about their highs and lows. Uh, hello. <laughs> so, uh, like uh, Miss Armstrong said, this uh, whole week mainly focused on the journey we all go through and the different parts of that. And I think, I think it was Wednesday was very uh, convicting, especially to me because lately I feel like I've been noticing a lot of this, and this really helped me look back at all that's been happening lately and it was about he described them as pits in our walk that we go through in our Christian life uh, in pits he said what people always forget to understand is pits can be even good things that happen in your life or neutral things like you could have made new friends on I don't know but you could find out that they can, like, sorry, I still have to gather my thoughts here. Um, I know for me, since I go to a public school, like some of the other kids back here, I notice things that happen there change the way I think and the way I talk and the way I act towards others. And that, in fact, is what Tim Morrissey was talking about is, you can make good new friends, people you know for your whole life, but never really accept the fact that they're not good for your Christian health or they kind of poison your mind, which was uh, very, convi very convicting towards me because I know lately we've gone through that in my family. Um, and that's pretty much all I have to say. Sorry, wasn't as articulate. 
Good morning. Um, our speaker was Mr. Morrissey. Um, our theme was peaks, valleys, and plains. Um, he first talked about the path of being, no, no. He first talked about the path of being a Christian. Um, and then he talked about what it's like being a Christian or what it means to be a Christian. On the third day, he talked about life on the path. The reason I want to point out this um, sermon is because it means how well you're doing in your spiritual life. People get their spiritual life and their earth life mixed up. You could be doing really good in your earth life or, and be doing really bad in your spiritual life, or it could be the complete opposite. But in this sermon, something really stood out to me, something that got me thinking. He said, knowledge can't save you. People could go to church for their whole life, read the Bible every single day, and know a lot about God, but they still wander off into destruction. really fun this year it was nice to meet new people and um, and it was um, <laughs> sorry I'm not good at talking um, we had a lot of fun and I got to do some um, new things this year that I wouldn't have gotten to do um, with my seizures before, um, but my seizures are kind of they're improving, and so I was really thankful that I got to do some, um, just some extra stuff that just made me really happy. Um, so I had a good week. Um, Mr. Tim Morrissey was the um, preacher this year, and yeah, he talked about the hills and the valleys and the plains of the Christian life, and how, um, you know, sometimes when we're, we can be up on the hill and we can feel, like, really connected and close to God, and, like, everything's going really well in our lives, and then sometimes we're in the valleys where it doesn't feel like God's near us at all and then sometimes we're in the plains where we kind of just aren't paying attention and get kind of um, uh, we're just going through life without really thinking about it um, so I think one of the important things that I took from his message was um, well, one thing is just how important it is to read the Bible and to be growing in God's word because, um, and then to apply what we've learned from the Bible to our lives. He said you can't do stuff without the Bible and you can't read the Bible without actually doing the things that you learn. And um, another thing that um, I, that he said was that um, 
a lot of people think that if you are confused about your faith or that if you don't understand everything, that means that you're not a Christian, but that's not true. Um, we just need to spend more time with God and prayer and reading the Bible are like really good ways to do that. So, so uh, I want to say that I was very nervous for camp this year. I don't I don't know really know why, but I was. And um, once I got there, it was it was so much better than I thought it was going to be. I got to like work on my relationship with friends there, and because um, it, I don't really have a whole lot of friends that you know know God and stuff, it was very encouraging to talk with them um, and expand our knowledge and things. And uh, I want to talk about day one. Um, for uh, the morning chapel on day one. He started off with talking about godliness and what is godliness. And, um, and uh, he also talked about your relationship with God, one-on-one. -on -one. What would your relationship be with God, like, with God if everything else was moved out of your life? What would, what would you have between you and God? And uh, that really stood out to me because I heard like a lot of my friends being oh yeah, God is, you know, God is my friend. I talk to him all the time. And I was like, how do I get that relationship with God? How do I, how do, I do that? And um, uh, then he went on to um, uh, spiritual numbness, how you can, like, go to church and um, learn all the things about, you know, read the Bible and, and do all the Christian things but your heart becomes numb, numb to it all. Um, and, uh, yeah, that's it. Um, good morning. Um, I'm going to be talking about day three because that day specifically also stood out to me. Um, Mr. Morrissey, he talked about um, the pits, the ups and downs, and the mask of your Christian life. Uh, he, he focused on our spiritual walk with God. And on the third day, when he talked about the pits of it, that you could be doing great, you could have a great day, you could make new friends, you could be having a good day at school, but you can realize, you realize that your spiritual life with them that day can be terrible. Um, the mask that Mr. Morrissey talked about is that you go to church, you pray to, you can pray to God with your family, you pray before you eat, you do all these Christian, this Christian stuff, and yet you don't, your heart, like Lydia said, your heart is numb to it. You don't feel it. That, like, I'm trying to think of an example. Well, uh, whatever. Um, <laughs> uh, also, what Mr. Morrissey talked about was the plains, the valleys, 
and your spiritual walk with God. Uh, for an example for the spiritual numbness is you, um, when you go to church, you can listen to your pastor talk about it, and you t- you don't really take in the message. You don't you don't take it to heart. You just hear it and say, "Well, that's over with. I'm gonna go home now and do what I want." You don't take it to heart. You don't go you go you don't go home. You don't have God and I time. You don't read the Bible by yourself sometimes. You don't pray to Him. You don't talk to Him. And as Mr. Morrissey said, um, if in order to be a Christian, God, Jesus can't be your secret friend. You can't go to church and say, "Yeah, I have a great I have a great relationship with my my Lord, my Savior," and go to maybe go to school, maybe go to work, go anywhere, and say you have a friend who doesn't who doesn't believe. They just start talking bad about our Lord. And, you're, and you'll do the same thing. You, Jesus can't be your secret friend. It's not, it's not the way to get saved. You can't go home and say, oh, God, I didn't mean any of it. I, I promise. And that's just not how that works. So that's what I really took to heart at camp. Because um, a lot of kids at school, they do that. Like they said, maybe in elementary school and first grade, my my parents take me to church. I'm a Christian, but now in in my uh, my middle public school, they 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 do terrible things, and I I do pray for them, and I try not to have Jesus as my secret friend. I try to tell them, I try to tell them that that he he's my Lord, he's my Savior, and they they can't do anything to jeopardize that. All right, so I have no notes. Hannah, just let me look at her for a second. So I'm going to use a little bit of what she has. Um, So what I was looking at on her notes was um, how Mr. Morrissey on the first night was, like, talking about, like, monks and how people were, like, beating them with sticks on on their, like, legs. And then eventually they just couldn't feel it anymore. <laughs> um, <laughs> and um, it also says in her notes that um, that it's like they're hardened to the gospel. And yeah, they can't feel it anymore. And then I don't know how to explain it. I gotta think about this. Oh, probably the last day where people just asked him questions. Um, one of the questions that um, was asked was, um, uh, where does evil come from? And it basically comes from our own pride and evil desire. 
because we want to be righteous like God. But we can't be. And, and that's the one thing I remember. Um, he also, um, his son, TJ, also asked, he asked a question, um, when do you think the rapture will happen? <laughs> and I, I forgot what he said because I couldn't really hear it. But, yeah. Um, and then one of the days, Giles's little son, when, uh, after we prayed to go to God and I time, his son's like, are we done now? <laughs> and everybody in the chapel just started laughing. And, um, one of my favorite times about camp was out in the canoe with Mercy and TJ because um, a kid named Josiah, he looked like me, like same hair, same eyes, like same face looking. And he got on a kayak and he started, and he just kept coming out to us and started to battle us. And so we're taking our paddles, we're hitting the kayak, trying to make him leave. It was just super fun. Okay, um, good morning. Uh, this was my first year as a counselor in training. Um, I was in the junior high girls cabin, and those are the ages from like 12 to 14. Um, and I had five girls, um, a little bit small because there was three of us counselors, so um, it was a little crowded. I'm, um, so I wanted to speak about um, our cabin devotions actually today because this was the first time that I wasn't on the camper side of it. This, um, my co-counselors <clears throat> had a lot of other jobs that they were doing this year, and um, they weren't exactly around for a lot of the, you know, uh, relationships that you're building with these girls, and so that was mostly uh, me, and that was totally fine because I loved that. I loved being able to talk to these girls, and cabin devotions came around and my my counselors who are exhausted from the day kind of just were just sitting next to me and they were just waiting waiting for someone to take charge and so I did and I led cabin devotions throughout the whole week and it was such a blessing for me um, mostly because I got to hear um, what these girls were thinking in their heads they got to ask me hard questions like how do you know a person is saved and I'm sitting there like uh <laughs> but really the answer that I gave back to them was you don't you don't know if someone's saved the only way that you do know is you know when you're standing in heaven in glory with Jesus and um, that kind of satisfied them a little bit but they were still like well you know so um, our last devotions that we had which that was on Wednesday night um, we were talking about the trials of people in the Bible and how their difficulties in their life led to good and of course we talked about Joseph and David and Ruth um, but our last uh, subject was Jesus and we talked about how his life was just full of hardships and yet you know he died on the cross for all of our sins and one of my girls um, told me that the first thing that they want to see when they get to heaven was not any of their family members who have died, 
but was the scars of Jesus that he had on his hands and his feet. So, thank you. Before we, uh, it's getting late, but before we uh, go into the scripture reading, I just want to add uh, a small portion to this. I spent, as an archery instructor, about an hour, a little over an hour, hour and a half, up there for the majority of the week. The first day, when you see all the kids together with their unbridled energy, it reminds me of herding cats. You've got them going every which way, in every direction, and you know it, it, the counselors do a magnificent job of getting these kids together, structuring them, uh, putting the format out, and, and getting the information to it. And I see that in the kids that come into the archery. When I'm able to sit down with them and, and just go through the... Some kids have never held a bow in their, in their life. And to see them go from that, fumbling with the, with the arrows and trying to get it, and to, to shooting and hitting, at least in close proximity to the target, the joy on their face of success. We should be heartened as mentors, not only in camp, but in this body of believers, that we see someone, we should be willingly mentoring them and encouraging them along in the things of Christ. So... With that, with that said, would you uh, turn with us, please, to Romans 9, and it'll be verses 6 through 29. That's going to be page 1758 in your pew Bible. Romans 9 through 29. <clears throat> and when you find it, would you please stand? <clears throat> Romans 9, 6 through 29. It is not as though God's word has failed. For not all who are descendant from Israel are Israel, nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is though Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, It is not the natural children who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this was how the promise was stated. At the appointed time, I will return, and Sarah will have a son. Not only that, but Rebekah's children had one and the same father, our father Isaac, yet Before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad in order that God's purpose and election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. 
Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not, therefore, depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who resists his will? But who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to him who formed it? Why did you make me like this? Does the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purposes and some for common use? What if God, chosen to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath, prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory, even us whom he called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles, as he says in Hosea, I will call them my people, who are not my people, and I will call her my loved one, who is not my loved one. And it will happen that in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Through the number of the Israelites be like the sand by the sea, and only the remnant will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence on earth with speed and finality. It is just as Isaiah said previously, Unless the Lord God Almighty had left us descendants, we would have become like Sodom, we would have become like Gomorrah. Father in heaven, may you add your, your holy and inspired grace to this reading of the scripture, and may it draw hearts to you. In the name of Christ, amen. You take your brown hymnal this time, the brown one, and turn to number 210. 210 in the brown. <clears throat>
while I'm getting the uh, notes ready. After listening to the testimony of our campers and staff, do you think they're dealing with hard issues at camp? Or are those kind of rudimentary issues that they're dealing with? Camp is, the lessons that are taught there, I know, but I've been involved with that for over a decade. They're hard hitting, and they're things that also, I'm taking to heart listening to their testimony. I would have been happy to have been under that instruction this last week too. I think sometimes we sell our youth short in thinking that they need watered down theology when the reverse of that is true. It's the Spirit of God who teaches and they need the meat of the scripture. Um, this was camp week, you know, and there was a lot going on. I thank you for the prayers. We had a whole bunch of things happen that maybe you're aware of and maybe you're not. Um, but God got us through as a church, as a staff, and as campers. Things that we predicted would happen happened in kind of a hard way. But I'm thankful to God who goes before us, and he knew everything that was going to happen this week. It was planned down to the nth degree. What a great God we serve. Is that not true? Uh, today, the choice of salvation Maybe I'll step on some toes, maybe I won't. Um, but I think being prepared in this day and age to um, answer, we're getting, well, I'll just let the message speak for itself. Let me just say that. Let's have a word of prayer. Father in heaven, thank you for this day. Thank you for your grace to us as a people. Thank you for the freedom that we have in this country to meet and to worship. And we know, Lord, as we should think often of your family scattered about the world who don't meet with this kind of security, if you will, in the government. It's no security at all, Lord. It's your blessing and your grace to us. Help us to be thankful people for what you have given. I pray, Lord, that you will uh, use the message today to encourage your people uh, to convict those that are lost and to bring them into the family of God. Thank you for your word, the guide for our life, the pathway. Thank you for Jesus Christ, who is the word. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. When you think of the choice of salvation, what comes to mind? Do you envision a moment of lucidity in your life when confronted with the overwhelming evidence of your sin and your painfully apparent need of a savior, you made a choice to accept the free gift of salvation provided by Jesus Christ. And this choice that you made under your completely free will brought you into a right relationship with God. This scenario is well accepted in Christian circles as the only way a person can come to know Jesus Christ. Biblical evidence is called into witness to this apparent choice that every person needs to make in order to be saved. The verses that are called into play include Romans 10 verse 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And Joshua 24 15, 
But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your forefathers served beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. You know, American culture dictates that we will not be dictated to. We, as a nation, are in control of our own destiny. and We will not be at the mercy of any other power. We carry arrogance unlike any other citizens of any other country. We believe that the rest of the world should acquiesce to our whims and demands and treat us with a level of respect equal to the status we hold as citizens of the most powerful nation in the world. And when this grandiose expectation is not met, we become disillusioned, frustrated, incensed, and indignant. It is this attitude of supremacy that has infiltrated the citizens of our great land and also affected all areas of our lives as Americans. It is no wonder why we have a problem with the reliance on a savior that is external to us. We want to be able to save ourselves. Yet having come to the realization that we cannot save ourselves, that apart from the redemptive work of Jesus Christ, we are irreparably and hopelessly lost, we still have devised a way, however so small, that allows us to remain in control of our own salvation. We would like to think that we are in control of our wills. That is, that ultimately beyond the massive and powerful work of Jesus Christ, we must choose whether or not to believe in him and be saved. And brethren, if this is how you believe today, then today is the day you need to adopt a mature view of the faith and see the choice of salvation for what it really is. Let us look to God's word, the definitive declaration of knowledge and truth, and let us put human reasoning and fickle emotional responses aside. Let God explain God's whispering of the Spirit of God and what he has to say regarding our salvation. What choice of the choice itself. What is the foundation for the statement, choose Christ and live, or even believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved? Why does a choice need to be made? Why would we have to choose anything involving our salvation? To begin, there are many passages of Scripture that allude to a choice or an act of will in regards to salvation, and to deny the existence of these texts would be foolish. Here are some examples. Mark 1, 14 and 15. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. John 6, 28 and 29. Then they, that is the multitude of followers, asked him, What must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. Acts 16, 29 and 31. The jailer called for lights, rushing in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. 
He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. Or what about Romans 10, 9 through 10? That if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. In all of these texts, we see a human action is required in the process of salvation. We are commanded to repent, believe, and confess. These are all action words. Actions like these require a choice made by a conscious, sentient mind. They as with all decisions, must be made after an evaluation of at least two viable directions. In these cases, the adverse direction that could be taken results in the loss of eternal life. And so to human logic, it appears as if no real alternatives exist other than to do what has been commanded. To not obey the commands of God seems to be a choice spawned of insanity. Why would anyone forfeit life. There comes in the life of many people a defining spiritual moment. Sometimes there are several of these moments in a person's lifetime. These moments occur when the reality of a person's sin and its consequences become as apparent as black against white. This moment of unaltered reality comes as a result from God's word, either spoken or read, concerning the position of that person as a vile sinner before a holy God. It is in this moment that the very actions described earlier are brought to a point of decision. Either that person will walk away forever changed and a follower of Jesus Christ, or not changed at all in position before God. And so it comes down to this, a choice to be obedient to the commands of God to repent, believe, and confess occurred in the life of the new believer while the unbeliever made the choice to ignore the commands of God. But is this all that really happened? Was the decision of the one choice over the other merely the result of human logic as an intelligent creature that contemplated the pros and cons of a given situation? And if so, why do many make the choice to perish? To examine this quandary, maybe we should really ask, are we able to choose? As mentioned earlier in texts from Romans 10 and Joshua 24, they seem to point to an exercise of free will. It appears we are called to actually do something active in the process of salvation. And what are we to do, if anything? And to what extent does our action affect our salvation? The stemming of these questions really points us to what is believed concerning the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. How effective was Christ's work? Was his work completed? What was its design? For the proponents of true human choice of salvation, the beginning of their logical premise begins with the fact that Christ's work was indeed complete. They believe that Jesus did indeed have a mission to fulfill and that it was fulfilled completely in his life, death, and resurrection. But what is their idea of the mission Christ completed? And to answer this question, let us look to some texts that are commonly used to defend this position. First, let's look to the, probably the most quoted verse from the Bible, John 3.16. 
But let's read through verse 18. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Now note that in this text it states that God loved the world. It does not sound selective, but rather inclusive of all people. The, world, the word world in this passage is from the Greek word cosmos that has several definitions. And they include an apt and harmonious arrangement of, or constitution, order, or government. The inhabitants of the earth, men, the human family. The ungodly multitude. An aggregate or general collection of particulars of any sort. The Gentiles, as contrasted to the Jews. Of believers only. Do you start to see some of the problems with all those definitions? The proponents of humanistic choice believe the translation of the earth, men, the human family. And so John 3.16 may then be translated to, for God so not only is this translation applied in this passage, but several others. John 6 verse 33, for the bread of God is he and gives life to the world, or cosmos. John 6, 51. I am this bread is my flesh, which I give for the life of the world, or cosmos. And by doing so and using this translation for this word, they make the distinction that every living soul, past, present, and future, was, is, or will be the object of God's affection. God then, motivated by his universal love, will send Jesus, his son, to die in order to provide a way for them to all gain salvation should they just believe. Christ lived and died as planned. Nothing interfered with his work. His work was finished, and it is our responsibility to take him up on his offer of salvation. God has done all he can do. He can show you the door, but he can't or won't make you go through. The rest is up to you. Now, this may sound good and decent to our sinful egos, but how will this definition of cosmos and the subsequent theories form compare with other portions of Scripture? If God universally loved the entire population of the world then the idea of universalism must continue to be expressed in parallel text of the Bible. Not only must universalism continue, but God must also be seen to remain rather detached in the personal salvation experiences of his people. Well, in addition to these seemingly universal texts, we have several texts that seem to point to an exclusive redemptive work of Christ. Concerning his own work, Jesus spoke these words in Matthew 20, verse 28. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. 
The word translated many is the Greek word polis, meaning many, many, much, or large. In this translation, there is no option for all. As those who hold to the universalistic view would hope, because many is not all. Also concerning his work and the establishment of the new covenant, Jesus spoke these words, This is my blood, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Matthew 26, verse 28. And again, many is the word In this parable of the wedding feast, Jesus ends his message with the phrase, For many are invited, but few. Many, again, is the word polis, but something new occurs in this passage. And he out of the many, not all, few are chosen. These words of Jesus Christ, developer and administrator of the new covenant, quite clearly point to a selective group of people receiving forgiveness of sins. So what, you may say? What do the ideas of universal atonement and selective atonement have to do with making a personal choice to accept salvation? And I would offer to you that it has much to do with having a choice in salvation at all. The problem arises with the omnipotence of God. Is God truly all-powerful? And the answer to that is yes. God is completely able to do all within his will. Okay? Both sides agree on this point. So then, if God is completely able to do what he wills and God willed that the plan of salvation be applied to all men as per the universal definition of cosmos, then logically, all men will be saved, right? I mean that if Almighty God, creator and sustainer of all things on earth and everything else that resides in this wonderfully expansive universe we exist in, has willed that all humankind that exists, existed, or ever will exist, will be saved, then they will be saved. And surely if Christ, the Prince of Heaven, has paid the ultimate sacrifice by giving himself up for the lives of, of the unregenerate masses, then all must be saved. Well, are all men saved? There are some people who offer this fallacy as truth that all people, regardless of a salvation experience or not, go to heaven because God has willed the salvation be applied to all on earth, whether the person believes in Jesus Christ or not. If that were really the case, why is there so much mention of the punishment of hell? And for the unbeliever, I would also wonder why God would threaten hell and separation from him if all people would simply go to heaven. Why would God spend so much time and effort threatening something that would never happen? Wouldn't that technically be a lie? If so, that makes God out to be a liar, not man. What also would, make, uh, would you make of the account of the rich man and Lazarus? Is the rich man the only soul with Judas who is in hell? And people who deny hell are wishful dreamers. Hell is very real. And it is full of people who didn't believe in it while on earth. Also, more importantly, if God decreed that all people would be saved and there is even one person in hell, then either God is impotent, self-deluded, 
or dead, or man is a liar. You see that either Christ's work was completely effective and he saved all whom he intended to save, or he is in some way unable to do what he wants to accomplish and subsequently ceases to be God. Apart from this very wrong assumption, many Christians believe that God is very much impotent, omnipotent sorry, and in complete control of everything except when it comes to personal salvation. And this argument states that God is a gentleman and would never, or even that he cannot, impose his will forcibly over the wills of his sentient creations. It is in our free wills, the argument goes, that we most resemble God, our creator. By saying this, they degrade the Lord of glory and exalt carnal man. To say that post-fall humankind has a quality that equals holy Jehovah is plainly sickening. Our wills are no longer free, and they never were. We are either in bondage to sin or bondservants to Christ. Before salvation, the only thing we could ever do was sin. In Romans 8, 5 through 9, Paul states it this way. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what the nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit. If the Spirit of God lives in you, and if anyone does not have he does not belong to Christ. According to God's word, unregenerate people have a mind that is shrouded in death and are not able to that pleases God. Freely choosing the plan of salvation would probably constitute something that was right and pleases God. Therefore, this very act that we would be able to choose the plan of salvation for ourselves by our own power is negated by the Think about that for just a moment. Furthermore, the text in Joshua 24, free will is not complete in the picture of what really happened. To understand this passage, as with every other passage of Scripture, one must study the surrounding context as well as be aware of biblical happenings outside of the present text. In the Joshua 24 chapter, Israel to be faithful to God. But let's read a little more than the 15th verse. Joshua 24. The Lord seems undesirable to you. Then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your forefathers served beyond the river or the gods in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Then the people answered, Far be it from us to forsake the Lord gods. It was the Lord our God himself who brought us and our fathers up out of Egypt from that land of those great signs before our eyes. He protected us on our entire journey and among all the nations through which we traveled. And the Lord drove out before us, including the Amorites who lived in the land. We too will serve the Lord because he is our God. But Joshua said to the people, 
you are not able to serve the Lord. He is a holy God. He is a jealous God, and he will not forgive your rebellion and your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, he will turn and bring disaster on you and make an end of you after he has been good to you. But the people said to Joshua, No, we will serve the Lord. Then Joshua said, You are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen to serve the Lord. Yes, we are witnesses, they replied. Now then, said Joshua, throw away the foreign gods that are among you and yield your hearts to the Lord. Well, we will serve the Lord our God and obey him. And on that day, Joshua made a covenant for the people, and there at Shechem he drew up for them decrees and laws. Joshua recorded these things in the book of the law of God. And then he took a large stone and set it up under the oak near the holy place of the Lord. See, he said to all the people, this stone will be a witness against us. It has heard all the words the Lord has said to us. It will be a witness against you if you are untrue to your God. Then Joshua sent each to their own inheritance. This was not the first time God had presented them with this choice. Before Israel, blessings and prosperity, as well as death and destruction, based on their choice and subsequent actions. In Deuteronomy 30, verse 15 and following, it says, See, I set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction. For I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, and to keep his commands, decrees, and laws. Then you will live and increase, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land you are entering to possess. But if your heart turns obedient, and if you are drawn away to bow down to other gods and to worship them, I declare to you this day, be destroyed. You will not live long in the land you are crossing the Jordan to enter and possess. This day I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curses. Now choose life so that you and your children may live and that you may love the Lord. Listen to his voice and hold fast to him for the Lord is your life and he will give you many years in the land he swore to give your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then Moses went out and spoke these words to all of Israel. So Israel, the chosen people of God who had witnessed the awesome displays of God's power were given the choice of attaining God's blessing or God's curse. They told Joshua and the Lord that, that they had chosen to obey. But not too far from this time in Israel's history, Israel does turn away from God. Israel was unable to serve God even though they had made the conscious decision to obey God. And we are unable to serve God. We are unable to choose life even though we may have made a conscious effort to do so. One more thought on the passage from Joshua. Joshua's choice offered in verse 15 is actually a litmus test for the heart. Joshua's statement was, if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your forefathers served beyond the river or the gods of The key word here is undesirable. If serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, that has no desire to serve the Lord, is one that will always choose to serve anyone 
is it's not always foreign gods. Usually the person they serve is themselves. But a true Christian finds delight in serving the Lord and will always follow him. Brethren, can you see that there was never really any choice? Gray area of indecision here. There's either right or wrong. A person who finds God undesirable will not serve him. And a Christian finds God undesirable to serve. Brethren, I must ask you at this point, is it desirable for you to serve God? Or do you serve yourself? So then, what God has commanded us to do how can we ever be saved and I offer that there is a choice the salvation of sinners but it comes from an external source to the sinner we must look again at the concept of an almighty will and must accomplish what he ordains to come to pass then the mere fact that not all people are saved must mean that God intended to only save some of them. Am I really proposing that God decides who goes to heaven and who is sent to the agonizing pit of hell? That we ultimately have no input in the church? That no matter what we do or say, good or bad, it has no bearing on salvation? I am saying that the Bible points to these facts. They can be verified, as we will now do. If you have your Bibles, turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, and we'll start with verse 3. Ephesians 1 reads, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he pretended us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. And now verse 9. And he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and earth together under one head, even Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And in this text we see that the choice of salvation occurred long before any one of us existed. How many human beings existed before the creation of the world? None. The only being in existence was the triune God, 
God the Father predestined us to salvation. Predestination is an act that the American Heritage Dictionary defines as to fix upon, decide, or decree in advance to foreordain. To foreordain or elect by divine will or decree. To understand this concept means that we come to grips with the fact that God predetermined our destiny before we ever existed and therefore was not influenced by anything we could have done. And to understand that concept means to understand that God has had a master plan for that is being played out exactly as he has determined it to be. And how is this even possible? How could anyone completely plan out the entire history of the earth and all the existence of humans, animals, and plant life throughout the ages of time? And what about the non-living things? What about the entire cosmos, known and unknown? Certainly no human has even the capacity to completely plan every event of a single hour of life, let alone the staggering feat of all of history for all things created. Only an omnipotent God can do this. And that is exactly what is occurring at this very moment. Now, in response to this revelation, the universal salvationists will accuse that this attitude, towards, towards, this attitude towards God plays him as a villain and an unfair entity. How could God not give the same opportunity to all people to be saved and still remain just? Plainly, this is unfair. We'll deal with the fairness issue in a moment, but first let us answer this objection biblically and accurately. God directly addresses this very issue and accusation through the hand of Paul the Apostle in today's scripture reading. Look again to Romans 9, starting with verse 11. <coughs> Romans 9 and verse 11 reads, Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose and election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not therefore depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who resists his will? But who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to him who formed it, Why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purposes and some for common use? I'm going to stop for my notes for a minute and just ask you, is mercy and compassion from you something that can be commanded? Think of a judge who may desire to give mercy to one criminal who's done something and the next one that walks in who's done the very same thing 
choose not to. Isn't it within the judge's right and responsibility in their good judgment to deal out mercy or punishment as they see fit? To the one who doesn't receive mercy, they may be angry about it, but it wasn't in their hands to begin with. The crime was committed. Things for us to think about. How much more God? In order then to understand the real choice of salvation, we must understand what we are in our position in the salvation equation. We are creatures of a holy creator. We are his property, if you will. We have never been free agents in the truest sense. We have and always will operate under the mandate and authority of mighty Jehovah. And if his relationship to us ended in the office of creator, he would still deserve and command our respect, praise, and glory. Accept it, brethren. God has the divine right to do with you and me as he sees fit. We belong to him. Therefore, in the equation of salvation, we are but recipients of the wondrous gift of God called grace. So then the question of who chooses whom seems to start to become clear. If we have been predestined to salvation, it surely wasn't us who did the choosing. Listen to Jesus' own words concerning the choice of salvation in John 15, verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit. Later in John's Gospel, Jesus' prayer to his Father reveals that those predestined to salvation were a gift to the Son from the Father. Listen to the first few verses of chapter 17. After Jesus said this, he looked up towards heaven and prayed, Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. By these verses alone, we can see that in the mind of Christ, there was a set number of people that were to gain salvation through his work. And to countermand the, plan of, the plain revelation of these texts, some theologians have suggested then that God's predestination was merely God looking down the corridor of time and his omniscience and noting who would respond to the gospel and accept his gift of salvation, then passing those people over to the saving work of Jesus Christ. This concept of God may include his ability to know all things, but it precludes his omnipotence. What kind of God could only sit back and record his insignificant creatures would do with his masterful and costly plan of salvation? Think of the price of salvation to save even one lowly creature, to appease his defining traits of justice and truth, God had to offer his only son as a sacrifice. So then, would God sit back passively after this terrible cost had been counted against him and God the Son? And I would offer to you that a God who cannot fully implement such a costly plan of redemption is no God at all. That God does not possess the character traits of the God of the Bible. But wait, you say. 
What about the choice to believe? Doesn't that point to an independent mind? Brethren, if we were unable to do anything good while in our sin, how would it be possible for us to choose to believe? Well, most certainly people do choose to believe, you may say. How can that possibly take place if we were really unable to do anything good? The answer lies again with God. The unregenerate person does not have the ability to choose to believe any more than a corpse has the ability to will itself alive. Colossians 2 verse 13 spells out our spiritual condition at the moment of regeneration. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. In Acts 16, Lydia's conversion shows just who is the operative agent in the reception of the salvation message. Verse 14 reads, One of those listening was a woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. The regenerate soul that God has resurrected and in which dwells the Spirit of God a true choice to repent, believe, and confess the name of Jesus Christ, Christ is a choice that is available and readily made. So then, it is God who empowers the will to make the choice to believe after there has been life given. A choice that was ordained for that new soul to make long before creation. And let me also say that if Christ's sacrificial work on the cross was designed for every person ever alive and subject to a person's free will choice, if even one person declined the offer, that would prove to be horrific. That the precious blood of Jesus Christ was actually ineffectual in the salvation of that one soul. That one person's will actually proved more powerful than the sanctifying blood of the Son of God. How absurd and how utterly insulting to God. And if it were true, how terrifying a thought. Furthermore, beyond this insulting theory, if the transaction for our souls were made between God the Father and God the Son, and God the Son paid the full penalty for the sins of those souls, to have one, even one small purchased soul not brought into salvation, would mean that in that person's subsequent judgment and destruction, God the Father would be punishing that person's sin for a second time, once through the sacrifice of his son, and again in that person's judgment. And that would be unjust, and God would cease to be God. Because God is completely just, the opposite would then have to be assumed that even should an elect person refuse the offer of salvation, they would still be saved. Why? Because that person has been bought whether they wanted to be bought or not. And I wonder how many slaves from our own history as a country who didn't want to be bought by greedy and abusive plantation owners were bought anyways. I could safely say all of them. Did their desires or beliefs change their situation? Of course not. Why? Because the transaction for their purchase was carried out without their input or consent. And the same could be said of the elect of Christ. 
whether the elect would actually want salvation or not would have to be insignificant. The end result would be that they would be saved regardless of any choice they made for or against salvation. Brethren, we choose Christ after he has chosen us. We love because he first loved us. God is the prime motivator in all of his plans. He did not leave any decisions to the fickle whims of his rebellious creations, and we as his people had better praise God that he didn't. For, brethren, if perfectly created Adam and Eve could not keep themselves from eating a piece of fruit amidst a garden chock full of other beautiful and tasty things to eat, what makes you, a vastly not perfect human being, think you could do any better? People who rebel against the idea of a completely sovereign and benevolent God have no idea what they are missing. I want God in control of my every thought, breath, and action. I could not trust myself to do right by myself, self-preservation and all. Beyond earthly decisions and directions, I could not navigate my soul to safety with God. I would most certainly plunge myself into oblivion. And so would every one of you. Praise God that we were not included in the decision of salvation. For in our sinful state, regardless of what you may think, we would all have turned down the offer of salvation and been lost forever because God is undesirable to serve. There is great comfort in the sovereignty of God if you are a child of his. God says in his word that in all things he works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Romans 8.28. Now what are the applications then for this study into the choice of salvation? Well, first, I believe that we need to rid ourselves of the remnants of self-reliance concerning our salvation. I wonder, do you harbor the idea that your choice of belief in Christ was the determining factor or one of the factors in your salvation? Brethren, we are inundated with erroneous thoughts of our fellow misguided Christians. Just about every song or message I hear on Christian radio today encourages the lost to make a decision for Christ. And beyond this, I have heard so many songs that point to other things that they have done in their walks of Christianity. We live in a day where self is glorified above what should be glorified. This incorrect paradigm of thinking is so prevalent in the world today, it has ensnared many people, some of which are good friends and even family members. What is Christianity about? Is it about, is it about the saving of our miserable lives? Is it about us being involved with the church? Is it about persuading others to accept Jesus the Christian faith is designed to bring glory to God, not to us, by living lies that show evidence of the workings of God within us. Those who desire to bring glory to themselves over their, over their accomplishments rob God of his glory. Salvation belongs to God and God alone. We claim to understand grace in this church. Absorb the import of this term, sovereign grace. Beyond merely understanding sovereign grace, let us bring this concept into everything we do and say. Let us no longer talk about the day we accepted Jesus. Instead, let us talk of the day that God accepted us through the sacrifice of his son. Let us no longer seek for a person to make a decision to follow Christ. 
Rather, let us not candy coat the ugliness of sin and tell the lost soul of God's marvelous grace towards sinners. Let us no longer view ourselves as self-reliant, sentient, free-willed beings, but view ourselves as we really are, bound to righteousness as slaves, doulos, of Almighty God. We must be careful with what we do and say. Either we help spread the ignorance of the truth of God, or we help put a stop to it. Choose the latter and begin with your own thought life. Let correct thoughts promote correct actions. Let correct actions become correct habits. Change today so that you reflect the Lord Jesus Christ more accurately than you did when you walked in the service this morning. Secondly, we need to praise God for the plan and work of salvation. How marvelous the workings of God to know that the names of the elect of God were written in the Lamb's book of life before the creation of the world boggles the mind. Let the reality of God's unfathomable power and wisdom bring you to a new level of respect for him. Give him the glory that is due him. In our best earthly understanding of God, we will still not know him as we ought. Nonetheless, we must strive to bring glory and honor to God and not ourselves. And beyond the plan of salvation, we must stop and solemnly consider the price that Jesus Christ made for his people. To condescend to the level of creature, full of rebellion like as we are in spite, and actually give up his life for them is beyond the reasoning of the objects of his affection. I wonder if we really understand how much of an injustice was done against God. The universal salvationist screams, unfair, unfair. And God says, I know. The ever-living creator shed his divine blood and dies for the lives of creatures that didn't want to be saved. The injustice was meted out against Christ. He had done no wrong, yet paid the horrible price for sins committed against him. God's salvation is not unfair to the unbeliever. Unbelievers justly receive exactly what they deserve, the wrath of God. Those who understand the message of the gospel and the workings of its structure cry, mercy, mercy, knowing full well that if they had demanded justice, they would perish. Do you love Jesus Christ? If you say yes, why do you love him? May it be that we understand what the Lord of glory did on our behalf. On that day, when he hung on a Roman cross on the hill of Golgotha, the place of the skull. God the Son, eternally present and in complete union with God the Father, nailed to a wooden executioner's pole, and paying the price agreed upon by the Trinity for your salvation. As your mind's eye envisions that appalling scene, Imagine yourself, justly in place of Christ, enduring the wrath of God for your own sin. And may God grant us a renewed respect and love for Jesus Christ that causes us to give him all credit, glory, and honor every moment of our earthly lives. May this love motivate us to share the great news of Jesus Christ. Sinners estranged from God can be reconciled. Christ has paid the ransom in full. The debt of sin has been paid so that sinners can have peace with God. Do you know Christ this morning? 
or is it undesirable for you to serve him? Jesus said, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Matthew eleven twenty eight through 29. Does that sound like an oppressive dictator to you? Or does that sound like heaven? I ask you again, do you know Christ? If you do not know him, you can know him this very day. You may ask, how do I know if I am one of the elect? You won't know until God mercifully saves you or justly destroys you. The fact that you are even asking the question means that the truth of God has pricked your conscience. If you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Call on Christ today to save you. Trust him completely for forgiveness and repentance. Then, when the sands of time have run their course, and the elect are gathered to be with Christ at the great wedding of Christ and his church, you will join with the great multitude in shouting, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord Jesus for such a great salvation. Lord, we heard this morning from the testimony of the campers that of being numb. And Lord, I wonder how much numbness is out there amongst our own people today. Many of us Christians for a long time, and we have forgotten our first love. You command us in Scripture to remember the height from which we have fallen and to repent and do the things that we did at first. So, Lord, I ask that you would grant that to us. Thank you for Jesus Christ. And we ask these things in his name. Amen. Our last hymn, 253 in the Trinity. That would be the red. 253 in the red. Stand with me once you find it. Two, five, three, and red.
that um, you have ladies your affections, um, your people, Lord, that um, as Spurgeon has called you, the hound of all you pursue, you um, draw us unto Christ, you give us new hearts, and um, 